pray for the blessing of God on his word. Heavenly Father, we confess that we're a forgetful people. The message of the gospel in one way is so simple, and yet we often forget it. We forget to apply it. We forget to trust in Jesus. And we pray this morning that we would be pointed towards Christ and remember his gospel of grace so that our lives would be built upon trust in him. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture text this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. And you'll find that on page 846 of the Pew Bible. The last couple of weeks, it's like Jesus has taken out a bazooka and been firing at us with some of the words he's been saying. And I'll just tell you this morning, he doesn't really let up. Okay? So fasten your seatbelts. Mark chapter 10 beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, or looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easy for a camel to go, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lambs with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob the twister, the one who would twist the truth, lied to his father 
at his mother's request, putting goat skin on his arms to pretend to be his brother, that he would receive the blessing while Esau was out hunting. He was a man who sought to trust himself, trust his own powers, trust his own wisdom, trust his own abilities to be successful, leaving his own family for fear of his brother. He went to live with Laban, and there he prospered, thinking that it was his own doing that brought about all of his success. It wasn't until years later that he learned otherwise when he was about to cross the river and go back to see his brother and greet him once again and fall down on his knees and repent before him that he wrestled with God and God wrenched his hip socket as if to say, you're not as strong as you think you are. And in that was Jacob's conversion where he learned that he was really a helpless man and that he needed all the grace of Christ. In many ways, we're like little children who grow up to say over and over to their parents, I can do it. I can do it. Don't help me, Mom. Don't help me, Dad. I can do it. And in a way, that's exactly what we have in this story is someone who says that very thing to Jesus. Here, what we find after Jesus has been teaching about divorce and marriage, that people were bringing their children to him, that he might touch them. And we're told that the disciples rebuked them. So you picture the scene. People are bringing their children to see Jesus, that Jesus might lay his hands on them, that he might bless them, that he might pray over them. And the disciples are indignant. Who are these people to bring their children to Jesus? Sounds very strange to us, but in the first century of the ancient world, children were an afterthought. There were no uh, parks for children to play in. There were no sporting activities. There weren't leagues set up. There weren't chess clubs and various activities for children like we have in our modern Western world. Children were an afterthought. They weren't considered to be worthy even of being in the presence of Master Jesus. And so the disciples looked at these people who are bringing their children to Jesus and they rebuked them. And here the disciples are falling into the same folly as the Pharisees who would prevent everybody from coming to Jesus. Who wanted no one to come into Jesus' presence. They distorted the character of Jesus. And here the disciples are doing the same thing. Jesus has no time for you. He has no time for your children. What are you thinking bringing their children, your children to Jesus? Jesus here was angry. He was indignant, we are told. When Jesus saw it, verse 14, he was indignant. He couldn't believe it because, you see, the disciples were falling into the same trap as the world, looking at children the same way. And he's going to reorient their vision of children to say, these aren't the bottom of society, but to such as these actually belong the kingdom of God. That's what he says to them in verse 14. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, just as an aside, the, the early church used this text as a way of defending infant baptism, of saying, well, here's Jesus allowing the children to come to him and, and blessing him, them. And so 
This is one of the proofs that we can have for infant baptism. Others have countered along the way throughout the years and said, well, Jesus didn't baptize them. All he did was bless them. You can't apply the sign of baptism to them. Well, that's true. All he did was bless them. But what would you rather have? Would you rather have your children have the blessings of the covenant or the sign of the blessings of the covenant? Would you rather the Son of God, the eternal Son who always pleases the Father, and the Father always does what the Son asks of Him, would you rather have that Son go to the Father and say, Father, will you bless these children? Or would you rather simply have the sign of the blessing? Jesus is doing the greater here. He's calling down all the covenant blessings of God, all the blessings that He would purchase by His blood, and He's pronouncing them upon these children. And so Jesus does the greater. He blesses, not baptizes. And it's a way of showing that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these He goes on to say here in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He tells his disciples, the disciples who have just rebuked these children and their parents, that they actually need to become like the children if they want to enter into the kingdom of God. Now the question is, what is Jesus talking about? What does it mean to become like one of these children? Some have read it to say, well, children are pure and they're innocent. They're angelic people. If you've ever had children or if you've ever been a child, you know by experience that that's not necessarily the case. Children are wonderful, but they are not without sin. Children are just as sinful as their parents. And the fact that here in this society, children are considered to be the lowliest The bottom of the totem pole gives us a hint at what Jesus is saying. Now, Mark and Luke attach a story to this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples regarding the children. And it's the story of the rich young man. Or in other versions, it's the rich young ruler. As if to say, now here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. Here's what it looks like to enter the kingdom As a child. Here we have this man in verse 17. Jesus was setting out on his journey and a man ran up, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. Now he addresses Jesus with a lot of respect. Here we're told that he kneels before him. He calls him good teacher. In other words, he sees some kind of connection between Jesus and God. And he pays him a lot of respect. Now, Luke says not only was he rich and a young man, but he was also a synagogue ruler, which meant for this man, he was taking a great risk coming to Jesus because all of the Pharisees who are aligned against Jesus All of the Sadducees who are aligned against Jesus would look at this man and say, now what are you doing? You're the synagogue ruler. You represent us. Why are you going and kneeling before Jesus and asking for advice? This man is sincere. He's got a real question. Good teacher, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. See, there's a, there's a restlessness in his soul. And maybe you've felt it too at times. A spiritual restlessness, wondering, is there more to life than this? If so, what is it? And where do I find the answers? Where do I find a, a sense of eternal joy? Where do I have security forever and ever? What am I supposed to feel like? And this man has this kind of restless soul and he wants to know the answer badly. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let me ask you this question. What would you say? What would you say? Maybe it's actually a, a prominent pastor in whatever town you live in. Maybe even here in Hendersonville. A prominent pastor who you sort of engage in a conversation with them and maybe they seem a little fuzzy about the gospel. And they ask you, what, what do you believe about eternal life? What would you say? Most likely we would say something like, well, you have to believe in Jesus, that He has paid for your sins, and then and only then can you have hope of eternal life with Him. But that's not what Jesus says. I guess He didn't go through evangelism explosion training because Jesus comes up with a different answer to the man. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. Here Jesus gives him some commandments that he might just feel like he can keep. Well, I haven't literally murdered anybody. I've been a pretty good son, and I've, I think I've honored my parents. I haven't stolen anything. I've tried my best not to lie. And on the surface, this man feels pretty good about himself. In fact, he says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. What's Jesus doing? He's testing the man. He's exposing the man. Jesus knows Proverbs. In Proverbs 26, verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You think you're good? You think you're righteous? Well, let's just test you and see so that you're not wise in your own eyes. So that you're not delusional about your own righteousness. And so Jesus gives him these commandments. And teacher, he says, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus here felt for the man. He looked at him. And he loved him. He knew that this man was delusional about his own sense of righteousness. He knew that this man could never be good enough to enter into the kingdom by his own merits. And he loved him. So much so that Jesus would take his finger and press it on the sorest spot possible. 
just so that he could expose this man's false beliefs about himself and therefore lead him down the path to embrace Christ and Christ alone for salvation. We see the response of the man. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Great possessions. Jesus' words were designed to have a sting. But it was a sting in love. So that this man would be set free from being captive to his own idolatry. And this man could not see it. And so he goes away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't want to sell everything. He didn't want to give up everything in which he found his security. I think he probably also went away sad as well because... Now he realized, here's what my devotion to God really looks like. Or rather, here's what the limitations of my devotion to God look like. See, I'm putting something else in front of God. Putting my own possessions, everything that I own. And I think his answer here is emblematic of all humanity. I've kept these from my youth until we find out we haven't. Sometimes we go away sad because we're unwilling to let go of the things that we've held on so tightly to in the place of God. This man is asked to give up all his possessions. You know that Sally and I have been moving into our house. We've been opening boxes. It seems like the boxes don't end. The boxes just keep coming and we're opening them up. And where are we going to put all of this stuff? And if you've moved any time recently, you know what it's like to just acquire things over the course of your life. You don't realize you've acquired them. You put them in a closet or on a shelf somewhere. You've stuffed them under the bed. And before long, you've crammed your house full, but you don't really think you have that much until you start moving it and you realize all the things that you really have. Now think about if you were asked to sell everything. Sell everything everything now there's probably some things tucked under your bed or shoved in a closet fine give it to the garage sale let's get rid of it we'll be free of those things but sell everything your family home your most sentimental prized possessions sally and i as you know um, uh, her family lost their beach house Uh, a while back as the ocean took it away. It was a very sad time for the family. Family had been going there since 1958. Lots of family memories. What do you treasure the most? What possessions do you treasure the most? What would it be like to sell them and have nothing? The people who own the property across the street from us, on Christmas Eve, In the middle of the night, they woke up to a fire in their house that burned down their house to the ground. Burned their cars up, burned everything. They had nothing left. What would it be like to lose everything? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's wanting to reveal this man's own helplessness in saving himself. You've put your hope in something besides me, he says. You've held fast to your possessions. 
You think you can be righteous, but I ask you to do this one simple thing and you can't do it. Because you're really helpless spiritually to do it. Because you're unable to do everything that I ask of you. He says so here in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there have been a lot of efforts made to explain away that verse, that maybe this uh, eye of the needle refers to this small door next to the gate of a town. And a camel would have to get down on its knees and basically scrunch through the door. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. That's not what Jesus says. The eye of a needle is the eye of a needle. It's impossible, Jesus says. That's what he actually goes on to say here. With man it is impossible, but not with God. It's impossible. Why? Why is it impossible? Why is it so difficult for a rich person, and we're all rich in here, why is it so difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God? Because, you see, the rich person is a person who's holding on to things and he doesn't even realize it. In fact, there are so many things that we hold on to in the place of Jesus for security that prevent us from actually embracing Jesus and holding on to Him. And the more we trust in all the things of this life, whatever it might be, the less capacity we have to come to Jesus and to hold tightly to Him in faith. That's Jesus' point here. You're helpless because those who put the most security in something other than Jesus are those who are farthest from the kingdom. And Jesus, loving this man and loving you and me, would expose every one of those things in order to rip them out of our hands so that we would have the blessing of entering into His kingdom. Remember the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua? They've entered into the land. All seems to be well. And Joshua says this to the people of God. He's assembling all of Israel. And he says, now choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether it's the gods across the river or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what do the people of God say? Oh, yes, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you can't serve the Lord. Now, how's that for an encouraging speech at the end of your life? You can't do it. Why? Because he goes on to say, you will have to throw away the idols in your presence if you're going to be faithful to God. Because you see, as long as you're holding on to them, as long as you're clutching them so tightly, as long as your trust and security are in these things, well then you'll never put your faith in Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He said, unless you become like one of these little ones, 
you cannot enter the kingdom. What he means is this. Children are helpless. They are dependent. It's not because they're so angelic and beautiful and pure and pristine and innocent. It's because they're helpless, especially in that society they were helpless. And Jesus is saying, unless you become completely helpless, you will never enter the kingdom of God because your trust will be somewhere else. Your security will be somewhere else. And that's the message of the gospel. No partial trust in Jesus will do. But only a clear sense of your helplessness and dependence on Christ and Christ alone. Now let me ask you this. How do you know? How do you know if you depend on something other than Jesus for your security? How do you know the answer to that question? Well, if Jesus were to come to you after church today and say, I'm going to come to your house for lunch today. And you have lunch with Jesus and Jesus looks around your house and he sees all the things that you love. And he listens to you talk and he hears all the things that you love in this life. And he were to ask you the question. Now go and sell that. Go get rid of that. What would you say? If he said sell everything. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. What would you say? What are the things that we are unwilling to part with? For some of us it may just actually be money. Or possessions. Things that we can put our hands around a sense of security in our bank account for other people it may actually be a relationship with somebody i can't give that person up even though it may be an unhealthy relationship for others maybe our dependence is actually upon our spouse that our spiritual lives are actually lived vicariously through our spouse and we sort of tag along and our security is in that person where do you put your security in? And what would Jesus want you to not put your security in so that you could embrace Him and trust in Him alone? Now, maybe actually Jesus has asked you that question or me that question and we've said no. We've been like the rich young ruler here who was disheartened and went away sorrowful because we have great possessions or great things that we trust in. And maybe we went away sad, not just because we didn't want to give those things up, but maybe now we realize the limitations of our trust in Jesus. That I don't really love Him like I thought I did. I'm not really committed to Him. I don't really trust Him the way that I thought. My devotion is not to Christ in the way that He would have me. Because he would have all of us or have none of us. That's the way Jesus wants it. He wants our whole hearts. Now Peter goes on to ask a very insightful question. Verse 26. We're told the disciples were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Finally, the right question is asked. If this is true, Jesus, who can be saved? After all, they're looking at the wealthy man and saying, now this man is blessed. He has so many things. He even has time because he's so wealthy. He can devote himself to God. He can read the Scriptures. 
He can spend time praying because he doesn't have to work as hard and as much as I do. If this man can't be saved, what hope is there for me? Who can be saved? What does Jesus say? With man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. A number of years ago, a friend of, of Sally's, um, whom I was introduced to, uh, was uh, sent out a, a newsletter. He was in music ministry and youth ministry. And this is what he wrote, if I could read this to you. He says, last week was one of those weeks, you know, the ones where all the plates we keep precariously spinning seem even more precarious than normal. We're selling the condo, looking to buy our first house. Can we afford it? Should we spend that much? Will this re- uh, record turn out okay? Will the entertainment lawyer be interested in our demo tape we just submitted? I've been in this wheelchair for 15 years, and I've yet to play my first wheelchair sport. Why is that? The fertility program that was going to afford Catherine and me an opportunity to try to get pregnant just fell through, at least for now. Will we ever have our own children? In the midst of these and other issues, finding their way to the surface of my soul all at once, last week my wheelchair slipped out from under me as I was getting out of my car in the condo parking garage. I landed on the concrete floor with a thud, immediately worried that I had bruised the skin on my backside. I sure hope not. Damaged skin on the rear of a paraplegic can quickly turn into a nightmare of infectious problems that require months of surgery to correct. I scanned the parking deck to see if I was alone. I was both glad and concerned at the same time, glad to spare myself the embarrassment, hoping to somehow pull myself up into my chair before anyone saw me, concerned because I knew that I probably would not be able to get off the ground without help. I pulled my feet out from the car, trying my best not to slam my legs and feet on the concrete floor. I then dragged myself several inches at a time toward my chair, which had rolled a few feet away. Gosh, I wished I had socks on. Random thought, not really. With each drag, my ankle bones were scraping across the concrete. No way to avoid it. No choice. Had to get to the chair. Those many seconds moving toward my chair seemed like an out-of-body experience. I was, after all, trying desperately to reach what had become an integral part of myself, the chair. I get anxious any time the chair is out of my arm's reach. After a few minutes, I had the chair positioned behind me for an attempt to hoist myself up. I tried how I tried, but I couldn't lift my 200-plus pounds of dead weight two and a half feet straight up off the ground. Frazzled and heavy laden, I screamed within, I am not helpless. A pain of of desperation ripped through my arms as I tried to lift myself twice, three times, beyond any honest hope of pulling it off. Perhaps I am helpless. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus was trying to get this man to see. You are helpless. And the same is true for you and me. We are helpless. Spiritually, We are completely and utterly bankrupt. There is nothing that we can do to keep the commandments of God so that we will inherit the kingdom of God. We can't even let it go of a few possessions, a few things that mean so much to us. Not because Jesus doesn't want us to have them. Not because Jesus doesn't want us to be filled with joy. 
but because he knows that the everlasting joy is with him and with him alone. There is nothing that you and I can do because we are helpless. But he says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. For God would send his own son to die in our place and to live a righteous life so that our sins would be his and his righteousness ours. And that though we are helpless, by faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous. Now let me finish up with this. Peter, Peter asks another follow-up question, or actually a statement in verse 28. See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands... Jesus will be a debtor to no one. If you give something up, he will pay you back a hundredfold. I remember standing on the beach at a conference with a college student who told me his life story previously. He came from a broken home. He came from a family that did not accept the claims of Christ. And he told me on the beach standing there, you know, my family has rejected me. And all I could say to him is, your family may have rejected you just as Jesus' family rejected him. But you have a new family now. You have the family of God who will love you for all of eternity. Jesus will be a debtor to no one. Whatever you give up, he will give back a hundredfold now in this life and in eternity to come. But he also says this, he says it will come with persecutions too. It will come with great difficulty. I don't know if you've ever heard of Polycarp. He was an elder in the ancient city of Smyrna, which is actually the city to which one of the letters in the book of Revelation was written to. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, a very prominent figure, and he was arrested at some point. And he was asked to confess that Caesar is Lord. He was told, swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Here was his response. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He went on to declare, I am a Christian you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. And at that, he was burned at the stake. He has done me no injury. Christ will do you no injury but to bless you. But to do what he did to this man to rip things out of your hands that would come in His place so that He could free you to now embrace Him and know all the everlasting joys and treasures of being in the kingdom of God. That's what Christ will do. He will repay you a hundredfold. And in the end, He says, 
Many are first. Many who are first will be last. And the last first. Though you give up everything in this life. He says you will be first in the kingdom of God. How do you enter the kingdom? Like a helpless, dependent child. Who has nothing to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's how Jesus would have us come. Let us trust in Him to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would be gracious to us, that in Your mercies You would very gently remove from our hands all those things in which we trust, those things that we may not even realize that we place our hopes in, so that when You ask, sell all Your possessions, give to the poor, and Come, follow me. We would say, yes, Master. We will do that and follow you. We might know you better and live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.